1929, Laurel and Hardy, portraying Christmas tree salesmen in sunny California, bumbled head-on into Jimmy Finlayson, a canny Scott comedian who looked eternally like he'd been weaned on a pickle. The result was a little film called Big Business, regarded today as one of the comedy classics of the silent screen. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Laurel and Hardy podcast. Now, I like to think that every Laurel and Hardy podcast episode is special, but this is extra special, as it marks the podcast's third anniversary. I can't really believe we've been doing this for three years already. It just goes to prove time really does fly when you're having fun. And indeed, fun is the name of the game today, as we take a deep dive into one of Stan and Babe's funniest films, the masterpiece that is Big Business. Now, you may or may not be aware that behind all of the comic screen antics, Big Business is also very well known for a story that Hal Roach relayed many times, uh, including on popular talk shows. Um, and Hal claimed that the production crew trashed the wrong house by mistake and had to subsequently pay off the traumatised family who lived there. Uh, when asked about this, Stan Laurel later dismissed the story as a load of baloney. Um, and this debate has been the source of much controversy over the years among fans, sometimes becoming quite heated on social media. So as I've done in the past with controversial topics, I'm splitting our discussion of big business over two episodes. On today's show, I'll be joined by our good friend Randy Scredvet, who sided with Stan Laurel, and Randy presents his evidence as to why that is. And on the next show, I'll be joined by the brilliant Richard W. Ban who was a close friend of Hal Roach, and Richard will lay out the facts of Hal's story. And this way, you'll be able to, once and for all, decide for yourselves, was it the wrong house, or just a great story? But, before we get into all of that, I have a few updates for you. So firstly, our Laurel and Hardy magazine. This is the all-new Laurel and Hardy magazine uh, that Russ Babbage and I took over uh, last summer. Now, if you've subscribed to the magazine, you should have received your winter 2022-23 issue. Um, it's the one that focuses on men of war, and it contains exclusive articles by Richard Ban. Now, there have been some very frustrating delays in getting this issue into people's hands, especially those of you in North America. Uh, and we can only apologise for this. The matter was very much out of our hands. Uh, the Royal Mail here in the UK was the victim of a cyber attack a few months ago. And as a result, uh, to keep everything moving and everybody's data safe, they've had to ship overseas um, with different shipping services. Uh, so this has taken longer for the magazines to reach subscribers, uh, especially those of you on the West Coast uh, of America. Um, and so it's taken far longer than we could have expected but I, I do know that they have started to drop it onto people's doormats in California so hopefully all is now sorted uh, but the feedback for the magazine that we've had from subscribers has been overwhelmingly positive um, and without wanting to sound conceited this is kind of what we expected uh, or certainly what we hope for uh, as we are so proud of this magazine that we've produced um, if you're interested in subscribing to the Laurel and Hardy magazine, you can find all of the information you need on our brand new website. So just go to www.laurelandhardyfilms.com. Um, which brings me very neatly to update number two. Um, on the 25th and 26th of March, uh, Russell and I attended the Talking Pictures TV Festival of Film, uh, which was held in St Albans. Um, and hello to any of you who I had the pleasure of meeting over that weekend. Um, you may have seen photos of our stand on my social media pages. Um, 
And whilst we were there, we were promoting the podcast and the magazine, but we also were celebrating the launch of our brand new website, laurelandhardyfilms.com. Uh, this is a big move for us as we've created a new home for all of our Laurel and Hardy projects to sit under. Uh, so this is the place where you can find all you need to know about the Laurel and Hardy podcast, the Laurel and Hardy magazine, uh, the Laurel and Hardy silence book um, and its follow-up volumes. Um, and also a new book that we are about to be producing for Richard Ban, um, all about Laurel and Hardy's Men of War. Uh, on top of all of that, we're also building up my series of blogs on each of the boys' films too. Uh, so when you get a moment, please do hop over to laurelandhardyfilms.com and take a look and let us know what you think. Um, and the final update for this episode concerns the Laurel and Hardy podcast's upcoming Patreon page. Uh, as I mentioned in the last show, uh, becoming a patron of the podcast for just a, a small few pounds or dollars a month will give you access to more podcasts, uh, extra segments, uh, which I know that you will love. Um, I've recently recorded some great chats uh, with Steve Massa, also some extra ones with Randy Scretvert, in which I asked, uh, I asked them both, in fact, um, the opposite of the atoll question. So um, I've, what I basically asked them was, uh, which three films would they banish to Bogeyland? <laughs> so they're in the can, ready to go, uh, really interesting subjects. Um, and I'm hoping to launch this Patreon page, uh, hopefully in the next month. So that will take us through to the end of May uh, 2023. So uh, keep your eye on the social pages um, and also my email newsletter. I, I won't let you miss it. So um, yeah, please do, uh, please do join on and become a patron of the podcast. Um, and finally, an essential element of the podcast that I absolutely love to include, and that is you. See who that is? It might be him. Hello? Hello, Patrick, and happy birthday to the Laurel and Hardy podcast. I've listened to every episode right from the beginning, and I always eagerly await the next one. The expert and in-depth discussions on each of the boys' films is always informative and enjoyable. I've been a fan of Laurel and Hardy since the late 1960s, and I've seen every film at least a few times, so it's great fun to listen to others who share my fondness for the boys. Keep up the fantastic work. I know that you will put your shoulder to the wheel, grab the bull by the horns, and put your best foot forward. Who was it? Oh, some fella having a joke. And that message was from Leon Olguin from North Carolina. Thank you, Leon, so much for leaving that message. Um, over the past month or so, I've also received more messages and five-star ratings and also these following reviews of the podcast. Uh, the first one says, The Ultimate Stan and Ollie Guide. Found this Laurel and Hardy podcast a little while ago, and it really has rekindled my love for the boys. Moving chronologically through every film Stan and Ollie made together, every episode is a goldmine of information. A goldmine? Um, if something about the boys isn't mentioned in here somewhere, at some point it just can't be worth mentioning. Patrick Versey expertly guides us through every episode and makes them brilliantly entertaining, informative and always interesting with the help of some great Laurel and Hardy experts like Randy Scretvet, Rob Stone, Glenn Mitchell, Richard Bant and more too. It's a must for any Stan and Babe fan. Listen to one and you'll just have to carry on listening. You'll get their opinions on each of the films in the canon and book and DVD recommendations and much more. Well done, Mr. Vasey. Keep up the good work. Uh, and that was from Drew030465 um, via Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much, Drew. 
That's a great review. Uh, the next one uh, is titled An Immersive Experience. And it says, This is an outstanding podcast. Having been a Laurel and Hardy fan for six decades, I've seen the films, read the books, listened to the Bohunks and all those S.H.I.E.L.D. Hately pieces. But what Patrick has done is to pull all these pieces together and created an even greater community of fans. By thoughtfully combining the blog, music, clips of the boys, and more importantly, the guest experts, Patrick has brought a strong voice to the silent era. I'm 17 episodes in, and I'm so grateful to hear the voices of all the experts who have published or performed so much of what I've enjoyed for decades. Everyone sharing their personal stories and insights about why they love the boys cannot do anything but warm the listener's heart. Patrick is a natural as the interviewer, informed and friendly. I can actually feel his smile as he connects with the guests. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to getting current, but by then I'm going to want new episodes frequently. Another fine mess, I guess. Thanks for the fun and education. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, and that was from Fran Holman. Fran, thank you so, so much. That's wonderful. Um, uh, and this message also came in. This email came in from Michael Greenfield. Uh, hello, Patrick and Russ. Congratulations on the beautifully appointed website. Well done. I discovered your podcast only a month or so ago and have been delightedly working my way through all the episodes. Uh, I finished off the finishing touch just last night. Patrick, you make for a very genial host and your genuine enthusiasm for the boys really shines through. It's been a great pleasure taking such a deep dive with you into all the films with the help of your knowledgeable guests. Without realising the connection, I also signed up some time ago for the magazine and it's quite handsomely mounted indeed. I really appreciate the latest instalment dealing with Men of War, which has always been among my favourite sound shorts. Like you and so many of your guests, Patrick, I'm a lifetime Laurel and Hardy fan, uh, having discovered them in the mid-1960s at a young age through the magic of after-school TV here in the States. I have any number of tales I can tell you of my own Laurel and Hardy journey through the years, and despite my lack of any credentials other than that lifelong fandom, I can imagine myself as a guest on your podcast and revelling in the chance to share those stories. If you run out of genuine experts as time goes on, I'm available. <laughs> uh, thanks again for all you guys are doing. I'll look forward to future podcasts, issues of the magazine, and the silence book once it's available. Sincerely, Mike Greenfield. Mike, that was lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Um, and one just very recently in from Abner. And Abner says, hello, everyone. I have no luck with voice messages, so I'm sending birthday wishes with this method. I look forward to many more years with the group the magazines and the photographs. I wish I knew about the group three years ago, but I don't go on Facebook very often. I spent 60 plus years in California and now I'm in Clovis, New Mexico. Keep up the fine work. Sincerely, Abner. Abner, thank you for getting in touch. Uh, and here is one final message that I just had to share with you. And now we talk a lot about new generations uh, not being interested in classic film and particularly we worry about Laurel and Hardy disappearing from popular culture um, if today's youngsters aren't introduced to the boys. Now one of my aims has always been to keep the memory and legacy of the boys in public eye by using current technology and platforms like podcasts, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blah blah blah. So this message that I received uh, from a 12 year old boy named Sammy really really warmed my heart. Uh, Sammy's father Tim informed me that since November uh, the podcast has actually been his nighttime story to listen to uh, which is just fabulous. Um, 
And um, Sammy actually sent me a message himself. He says, hi, Patrick, congratulations on three years of the podcast. I can't wait to hear the next one. As it's the Easter holiday, I've managed to make a new and revised version of my original stop-motion recreation of the music box using the Lego figures that you sent me. And here it is. And he's posted a link, and I've actually put that on the Facebook page, also on Instagram. Um, I think I think that's it. So if you want to have a look at Sammy's work, which is brilliant, uh, please do look on the Facebook page and you'll find it. It was, uh, it was posted fairly recently. Um, he says uh, his name is Sammy. He is 12 years old. He's a huge fan of early comedy and he loves listening to the podcast. Uh, since Christmas, he's been reading Glenn Mitchell's A to Z of silent film comedy, uh, and it's been, it's been great to hear him on the podcast too. He also loves the episodes with Randy Scretvet, but please tell him not to worry about his long answers. <laughs> I don't like them too short, which is fantastic. Um, Sammy's father, Tim, says that he's been obsessed with early comedy for a few years now, and Laurel and Hardy have been a big part of his interests. Uh, That's My Wife is one he really likes, so he'll definitely be listening to that episode. Which is just wonderful, absolutely wonderful to get that. Um, Keep up the the good work, Tim, in uh, fostering Sammy's interest in Laurel and Hardy and all things classic comedy. And hello, Sammy, to you. See who that is. Hello? Just a minute, my friend Mr. Hardy will speak to you. Hello? Uh, pardon the delay, please. But what is the nature of your business? It's hard to believe that the best and most fun podcast is turning three years old. Patrick, you have helped reignite my passion for the boys through your impeccably reached show and blog. You have introduced me to new friends. You have given me hours of listening entertainment. I often think about how fortunate Stan and Babe are that their legacy is in the wonderful hands of such talents as the great Randy Scretvet, Richard W. Band, Glenn Mitchell, and a host of others. I hope you know that your contributions to the boys through your amazing podcast and blog are every bit as important and vital as Randy, Richard, and others. I cannot express how much I look forward to every new episode and to think we are only just now approaching the sound films. Wow! How unbelievably exciting. So in celebration of three fun-filled years, congratulations, cheers, and best wishes always. Goodbye. (laughs) And that was loyal listener and member of the Blogheads Facebook group, Chris Shear from Texas. Chris, thanks so much for getting in touch uh, and for your continued support too. Hello. Patrick. What you have created out of true and pure love for the most important comedy duo in the history of film is tremendous and effective in the reassessment and further push of Laurel and Hardy into the future of the popular culture. Stan Laurel needs to be recognized way more for his genius and for his pushback in changing the way things were done in comedy at a crucial time in film. I remember finding your blogcast in a search for another thing worth listening to. So I typed in Laurel and Hardy and I downloaded and was blown away by the attention to detail. Many never known before. The structure of the program is perfection. The voice, your voice is great and your oratory skills are spot on. Uh, The manner in which you edit the audio clips between the interviews and the assessments are all well thought out. And the entire dynamic of your show is beautiful. It serves as a perfect runway for the process of revelation and collation on our favorite subject, Laurel and Hardy. 
Your interviews are really well done. The people you have access to are unbelievable. And the amount of care I put into your now podcast yields nothing short of joyous, informative results. Welcome aboard your partner in the awesome magazine, which is really cool. And I'm very much looking forward to the gorgeous silence book, as well as everything following the release of it and more. Thanks for three great years of solid celebration for the architects. Having one of the authors of The Magic Behind the Movies as a guest living time machine aboard your ship on many adventures is also insane unto itself. You even achieve greater heights than most by having a relative of Fennelson that could inform us about his family member slash greatest sideman in Laurel and Hardy lore even more. And uh, I wish you many more years to come for the opportunity to let the new world know about Laurel and Hardy. Cheers as you would say. Also, I really think you'll get that Dick Van Dyke interview going sooner than you think. I know he can do it. Uh, This is Gravity Amplifiers on social media saying goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Oh, it's so, so good to hear your voices, guys, and to have you as part of the show. Um, And what wonderful comments. It's unbelievably gratifying to hear what you have to say. So a thousand thanks. And indeed, a thousand thanks to everyone who has sent me comments, tweets and well wishes recently. Uh, Your positivity and your support do so much to keep me going. Uh, especially when my day job is going crazy, uh, my home life is unpre- unpredictably frantic, um, and here I am trying to produce a podcast, a magazine, a new website, three new books, and everything else in between. So please never underestimate how important your comments, your reviews, and your feedback are to me. And as a wise man once said, A little kindness goes a long way. And talking of keeping going, it's time for us to get going with today's big business in hand. So throw on your duffel coat and your winter mittens and let's go sell some Christmas trees. Today we turn our attention to the film Big Business. It was filmed on December 19th, 1928 to December 26th, 1928. It was released on April 20th, 1929. It was produced by Hal Roach, directed by James Horn and photographed by George Stevens. Main supporting cast was James Finlayson, Tiny Sanford and Lily Teo. Of all the silent comedies that Stan and Babe made together, Big Business is arguably the most well-known and with good reason. The film's reputation amongst the production crew members, as well as contemporary exhibitors, fans of the boys and more recently the team's biographers and historians is unanimously positive, to say the least. Notable commentators such as John McCabe, William K. Everson, Glenn Mitchell, Simon Louvish, Randy Scretvet, Richard Bann and Charles Barr to name but a few all heap high praise on the film. And here are just a few quotes from those authors. One of the ten great comedy films of history. With big business, Laurel and Hardy touch comic greatness for the first time. The funniest two reels on film. Probably the greatest comedy ever filmed and one of the funniest of all films. It is perhaps surprising to learn that what became widely acknowledged as a comedy masterpiece was created incredibly quickly. With only two weeks to go before the studio closed for a few months to allow the installation of sound recording equipment, the Laurel and Hardy unit had two entire comedy shorts still to make to meet their quota. Whilst making pictures in quick succession was relatively common practice for the team at the Halroach Studios, 
making two in two weeks that were entirely different and top quality entertainment, as that's my wife and big business arguably are, is still remarkable. If there's one thing that a tight deadline does, it demands focus. With no time to work out intricate story details or elaborate locations, the plot and setting of this classic comedy couldn't be simpler. Filmed during Christmas week 1928, the inspiration for the picture's theme was obvious, the festive season that was upon them. From the very first shot, the premise is established. The boys are Christmas tree salesmen touring the streets of Culver City in their trusty Model T Ford and going door to door trying to sell their wares. But despite how sound their big business idea may be, the world that Laurel and Hardy inhabit is set harshly against them again. The first two house calls, filmed at a corner duplex on Caroline Avenue, are unsuccessful. Stan insults the owner of the first house, played by Lily Teo, resulting in the door being slammed in their faces. At the second residence, the unwilling occupier, represented only by a fist holding a hammer, does not take kindly to cold callers, and Ollie's head takes the impact from a couple of strikes. Ever the optimists and hoping for third time lucky, the seasonal salesmen move on to a third house. This property, located at 10281 Dunlea Drive in the Cheviot Hills area of Los Angeles, an area frequently used by the Roach Studios for location filming, becomes the venue for the remainder of the film's action. As before, however, this resident is also not interested in buying a Christmas tree. To make matters worse for the boys, as the door is answered, we discover the occupier is none other than firm fan favourite, at his absolute ultimate best, James Finlayson. Just as the main thrust of the boys' 1927 classic Battle of the Century was the pie fight to end all pie fights, Big Business would serve as the last picture to use reciprocal destruction as its main theme. There would of course be many more sequences of tit-for-tat carnage throughout the boys' future pictures, but this would be the last to use it as a main plotline. The build-up to the inevitable chaos is wonderfully executed. Finlayson refuses a tree and slams the door, trapping a branch of the boy's fir tree. Unable to remove the branch, the boys ring the bell in order to free the tree. Finn answers the door, is surprised to see the boy still there, and slams the door again before Stan has time to move the tree. Therefore, the tree is trapped again. Frustrated and embarrassed, Ollie rings the bell again and Finn answers, more annoyed. This time, however, Stan is ready and he moves the tree before the door is closed. Pleased with themselves, the boys attempt to leave, but now Stan's winter coat is trapped in the door. This time, when Finlayson answers, he berates the boys, the door slams, the tree branches once again stuck. Finally, after Ollie rings the bell one last time, Finlayson appears, but this time he grabs the tree from Stan and throws it into the garden and tells the boys, in no uncertain terms, where they can go. Back at the boys' Model T, Stan has a big business idea. Not content, or perhaps intelligent enough, to know when to leave well enough alone, he returns to the door, summons Finlayson and asks to take his order for next Christmas. The Scotsman tells Stan to wait and disappears back into the house, causing Stan to assume he's been successful. He gesticulates to Ollie that he's made a sale, and Ollie excitedly brings a tree to the door. However, Finlayson reappears with a pair of tree loppers and cuts the tree into three pieces. And the blue touch paper is well and truly lit. 
From here, the film is nothing more than a wonderful tit-for-tat of destruction on an unprecedented level. Stan and Ollie destroy Jimmy's garden, his house, many of its contents, and in return, Finlayson totally obliterates the boy's car and their stock of Christmas trees. Whilst this may sound like pretty standard fare for a Laurel and Hardy comedy, the genius is in how the film is constructed. It starts very sedate and innocent with all good intentions, then builds from one small violent act on their opponent to the next slightly larger one. As the violence escalates, so too does the pace of the film in tandem, all growing to a frenetic crescendo of mindless destruction. The humour is cleverly and brilliantly multiplied too. Amidst all the barbaric savagery, Stan, Ollie and Finlayson manage to display perfectly genteel manners as they politely wait to see what atrocity their adversary will enact upon them or their property. Not a single speck of revenge is meted out until one is satisfied the other has completed their attack. The plot is simple, the performance is sublime and the gags are thick and fast. The tool of reciprocal destruction has never been and could never be executed better than here. The film is a perfect example of a masterpiece born out of necessity. The limitations imposed on the production by factors such as timescale and location ensured the ingredients were boiled down to create concentrated comedy gold. It's interesting to ponder these ingredients too. For instance, was the fact that they chose to shoot entirely on location due to the senior figures at the Halbridge studio wanting to begin preparations for the technical upgrade a week earlier than planned, perhaps? Other films in production that same week were our gang's Fast Freight, an arguably below-average offering utilising limited studio stage space and with a fair amount of location shooting. And also Charlie Chase's Movie Night, which was a reasonably decent comedy, but also much of which was apparently shot on location also. But as well as being a fantastic example of silent comedy, Big Business also has its fair share of mythology surrounding it. However, I'm not going to discuss that here, as I prefer to uh, leave that to the conversation with Randy and with Richard. Uh, I certainly don't want to take anything away from that conversation. Um, which will, uh, I'm sure you'll be glad to know, will reduce the time of this audio blog for today's episode. Um, but the film was intended to entertain and make audiences laugh, and it has been successfully doing that for the best part of 100 years. Despite the apparent and unusual shortage of contemporary reviews available at the time of writing this essay, it appears that the film was received by audiences very positively, as one might expect. Quote, Getting so that I'm running out of good adjectives in reporting on these Laurel Hardy wows, so I'll merely say that the boys start out in the Christmas tree business and end up as house wreckers. Imagine the complications. That was from the Screenland Theatre in Nevada in Exhibitors Herald World, June 15th, 1929. And very good, as are all Laurel Hardys, about the best bet on any comedy. That was from the Iowa Theatre in Bloomfield from October 12, 1929. Worthy of note, perhaps, is that when this silent comedy was finally released to theatres in April 1929, talking picture fever was already sweeping noisily through Hollywood and the wider world of cinema. It could be argued, therefore, that Big Business and the remaining three Laurel and Hardy silent comedies may have been considered antiquated even on release. However, 
This final exhibitor's review illustrates that even in the face of a global and industry-wide change, the comedy of Laurel and Hardy is timeless, unbreakable and universal, regardless of sound or silence. Quote, Big Business. A very funny comedy. These comedians' silent comedies make good in a talking theatre, and right now, that's going some. And that was from the Silver Family Theatre, Greenville, Michigan, from July 27th, 1929. Joining us for the first part of our deep dive into big business, Stan and Babe's masterpiece of silent cinema, we are blessed to have with us the man that I'm sure knows more about the films of Laurel and Hardy than anybody else on the planet. It's multiple-time returning guest, author, film historian and Laurel and Hardy expert, it's Randy Scretvet. Welcome back to the Laurel and Hardy podcast, Randy. Thank you, Patrick. It's always wonderful to talk to you and uh, I hope I'll say something interesting. Oh, I've no doubt about that. More than more than one thing, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I'm so thrilled to have you on on today, Randy, because I know this is um, this is a highlight of Stan and Babe's film career, without a doubt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, many of the experts have kind of discussed it, and you know, in, in all the text, and we see the best silent film, the best comedy film. You know, everybody seems to be in agreement over big business, um, and I'm fascinated to discuss certainly a certain story related to um, to big business, and we'll get onto that in a little while, um, which is slightly contentious, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know which yeah, one you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Um, so, but what? I, the, I mean, the first the first fact that I just I will just throw at you, which uh, which I just astounds me because of the quality of this film. Uh, the last film in 1928 made by Stan and Babe at the Roach Studios, filmed in just one week. I mean, that yes. is just incredible. They were very, very prolific in uh, 1927, 28, and 29. Uh, they could make silent films faster than they could talkies, but they made the talkies at a pretty good clip, too. But, uh, uh, you know, this is when they were becoming well-known, and the demand was there, and uh, it was one of the brief periods when the Roach Studios really wasn't uh, <laughs> edging toward bankruptcy, <laughs> which which it did for most of its existence, sad to say. Uh, it was one of the few years, I think 1928-20, before the crash, uh, I think the, the, the golden period for Roach was September of 27, when he first started to distribute through MGM, which gave him a lot more money to work with than Pathé, yeah. and then October of 29, when the stock market crashed. So there's about two years there where things were just, just going great. And then the other uh, great period for Roach was the early 50s, when he was doing all the television production. Right. Uh, uh, every other time, it was just hanging on by the uh, hairs of his chinny chin chin, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, Big Business is a wonderful film. I don't know if it's my favorite Laurel and Hardy silent. I think my favorite is probably Your Darn Tootin, right? Because I, I think that one um, says a little bit more about their relationship, about their yeah. friendship. Yeah. Uh, however, it, it, even if Big Business may not be quite as deep a film. Uh, as as your darn tootin, uh, it's exquisitely uh, crafted, beautifully crafted film uh, for being a movie that is essentially one joke uh, yeah. that just keeps escalating and escalating. Yeah. Uh, it's paced beautifully and it builds beautifully. Mm. You know the, the the problem with a film like that is that you 
you you you you hit your best gag your climax too early and you've got another five minutes to go yes well they they knew how to pace it and they knew how to build uh so you know they 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 saved the best and and they knew how to do a coda at the end of it you know it's not just it's not just uh, destruction they have that wonderful scene at the end where everybody breaks down in tears and they <laughs> apologize and then laurel and hardy sort of kind of get the last laugh yes yeah yeah, <laughs> that's lovely. Um, I mean, I do like the, um, the the pacing of that of the film is just so, as you say, well crafted. Yeah. It starts very kind of sedately, almost just bit by bit by bit, um, and it's it's just wonderful how. And in, in, in the end, it's carnage. It is absolutely frantic running <laughs> around, isn't it? You know, but the, yeah, the the pacing of it is just outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And this is Leo McCary's last credit, of course, on a on a, on a Laurel Hardy film. Yeah, uh, there are people, or somehow, uh, their uh, credit has been ascribed to McCary for things all the way through Hogwild, and. Uh, Maybe he had stockpiled some story ideas. I don't know, but he was no longer at the studio. Uh, two days after they finished filming on Big Business, his contract with the Roach Studios was terminated, and he went over to Path A because he got an opportunity to direct feature films. Mm. And uh, so that's that's where he went. And he, you know, he never did any Laurel and Hardy talkies. He did this. There was a strange quote. He, he was interviewed by Peter Bogdanovich in 1969, and. Um, he said, uh, no, that's, he said, that's the reason I left them was because neither one of them could talk. And, you know, that's a strange thing to say because number one, he, he they didn't make talkies for another five months after McCary left and sound added so much to Laurel and Hardy. I mean, we, we love them for the catchphrases, you know, well, that's a good idea and it certainly is. And why don't you do something to help me? And, you know, and here's another nice mess you've got me into all the, I mean, sound deepened and enriched their characters and and they knew not to talk too much also so uh, the idea that they were failures in sound is just uh, a very strange <laughs> uh, concept to have but yeah McCary uh, he was the supervising director um, from mid-1927 until the end of 1928 and supervisor meant contributing stories looking at the rushes uh helping with publicity and re really overseeing everything that the, the studio was making at the time so he was a very very busy man and he did he did direct three laurel and hardy pictures and i think he also directed most of what we see in early to bed even though it's credited to emmett flynn um but he did uh, let's see wrong again and uh he also said that he directed the uh, uh the the tailor shop sequence of putting pants on philip uh and he and he directed we fought down and let's see if i can remember the third one that there is well anyway he is one director where you can tell when he's the director because he really took the idea of uh, laurel and hardy doing nothing to extremes uh there there are in his films and not in the direct not in the ones directed by anybody else there will be long close-ups of just kind of nothing happening of just <laughs> stand looking <laughs> blankly into the camera you know yeah. so uh, that, but that that was his idea that you really slowed things down and you got away from the Max Senate craziness, you know. Yes, yes. But anyway, he he, we owe him a debt of gratitude because he really was the guy who went to Hal Roach and said, "Let's build a series around Laurel and Hardy." And I think I I think the the first one where you can tell that they're thinking in that way is is the second hundred years, 
because the publicity for it says new starring team in first picture as comedy duo. And so clearly, I think that's the one where McCary had said, you know, let's try and the All-Stars really wasn't going anywhere. Uh, they had tr they had tried to make a star out of Jimmy Finlayson, and he really was designed to be a second banana, a, a supporting comedian, really, yeah. rather An than excellent a star. One. And uh, I'm sorry, an excellent supporting banana. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, you know, some comics are just designed to be the supporting comic and not the star. And uh, so that they were trying to do something a little more interesting. And it looked like Laurel and Hardy had the ability to carry films by themselves. And sure enough, they did. So so we have McCary to, to, to thank for being the guy who went to Hal Roach. And as as Mr. Roach told me in 1981, he said, he said, well, I would give McCary 50 percent. He said, after all, I was the guy who agreed to do it. <laughs> so, you know, if Roach point. said no, then that would have been died a morning. So was there was there much um, kind of because I know there was kind of almost a necessity to, to replace Max Davidson, as I understand it, because of the um, the MGM link with, you know, obviously Jewish owners, and they didn't want to have this stereotypical Jewish yeah. character. Yeah, he's um, he's he's an old world Jew, is what he is, and uh, I mean, there there's nothing derogatory about those comedies. They're very affectionate, and he's very funny. Uh, you know, and, it, and a lot of it really is sort of him trying to adapt to jazz age 1920s America, you know, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people who were from the old country, from Eastern Europe, were dealing with that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of his, with the, the few that survive are very, very funny. But yeah, MG, I think MGM was nervous about them. And so uh, he, he he stayed around for a while some, doing some supporting roles. He's in a, an our gang comedy called Moan and Groan Incorporated as a rather crazy hermit. Um, and he's in he's in one of the uh, uh, Anita Garvin, Marion Byron pictures. And there's actually one that he did where he was teamed with Hardy called Love Him and Feed Him. And feed Him, that's right. Yes, and yes. That, that only exists partially, but that's a fascinating film because that was made, I think, even after the second hundred years. I think Hardy's head is shaved in that one. That's and, right, uh, yeah. So it was like, well, you know, we're we're going to make this new starring team out of Laurel and Hardy, but let's see what Laurel, what let's see what Hardy and Davidson looks like too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, I think was, nothing was said in to stone. Stan, was Stan, Stan was late back from vacationing in England, wasn't he? I think. Uh, I, I think he'd gotten back, uh, but yes, he they, he went on vacation right after Second Hundred Years, and so the first time he'd seen his dad in many years, here he was with his head shaved. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's in right. August of twenty-seven, yeah. <laughs> and oh, and uh, I I I think that's the time when Babe and Myrtle went to. Um, they went to Cuba for a vacation, as people yes. often did in those days, because I've got their passport photo and his head is shaved. <laughs> yeah, you showed me that last time, I think. It was yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of, it, it was very, very fortunate, I think, for the studios that Laurel and Hardy were kind of just being noticed at that point, with obviously Max Davidson being kind of shown the door almost forcefully, yeah. and they would just happen to have a ready-made team ready to go to take place of, the, of that series. Yeah. And Laurel and Hardy uh, uh, in, took off in popularity very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I've always thought it was strange that uh, uh, Hats Off and uh, Battle of the Century were the films that were uh, missing for so long because those were the two films that really kicked off the team. Yeah. Uh, you know, really got the reviews saying, hey, these guys are very, very funny. And yeah. 
maybe this was before Richard Courier told Charlie Levin at the lab to make two uh, uh, fine grain master positives on everything. Um, so maybe they got yeah. printed into extinction, you know. Yes, of um, course. Yeah, anyway, now we are at least blessed to have almost all of Battle of the Century again. And uh, who knows? There have been some amazing finds very recently on LNH Silence. Uh, oh, okay. that I, I can good. tell you. There, yeah, that's very positive. There, there, there are exciting projects in the works. And I can't oh, say excellent. anything more about it, but stay tuned. Stay tuned because. Uh, you will be very happily surprised. <laughs> oh, that's excellent, <laughs> and that's no more than they deserve because there there are some real treasures amongst those silenced. Uh, and shows. and even and even the films which we have dismissed, and mainly because we have only seen them in rather feeble print quality, they become much better movies when you can see them in pristine print quality, and you don't have to struggle to figure out what's going on in front of you. So. Uh, I think I think the the critical uh, evaluation of some of these movies will will rise because now when you can see them as they were meant to be seen, we'll go, oh, this isn't too bad, you know. Oh, that's great. That's, I, that's exciting. I, I, I've had that uh, experience with Laurel and Hardy murder case, uh, you know, because usually I, you see it in pretty dupey prints. Yeah. And if you can ever see a really good one and begin to appreciate the lighting and the photography oh, and okay. see what it was really meant to be, it yeah. becomes a much better movie. <laughs> Of course, well, it was, but yeah, good. Oh, that's great. That's really exciting. Well, yeah, watch this space. We'll be, we'll be listening with um with great interest on that one. Yes. that's fantastic. Yep. Um, so the first story that um big business is very uh well associated with, and and I'm not exactly sure where it came from, is that it was shot in um sorry, it was set in the summertime. Ah, yes. Well, you know, uh, even Stan Laurel thought that <laughs> in later years. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, if, if, if you are in Southern California in December, we don't have snow. Uh, most of the United States has snow during Christmas time, but we don't. Uh, even in Northern California, they have snow, but not down here in Los Angeles County and Orange County. Uh, however, you notice that Laurel and Hardy are wearing heavy overcoats. Yes. And, and uh, it just says selling Christmas trees in California. And it doesn't say anything about it in the summertime. Yeah. Now, however... Uh, if you ever see the Kevin Brownlow documentary series, Hollywood, the 13 part mm. series that he did, the only chapter in which Hal Roach appears is the first one. And he's telling that story. And he starts off by saying, Laurel and Hardy are selling Christmas trees in the summertime. Ah, and, Mr. Brownlow. Okay. And, and, and <laughs> there is a tape of a phone call. I wish I could remember who the other party is, but Stan is talking to one of his fans in 1964. Yes. And he says, Yeah, we're a couple of salesmen, and uh, some guys talked us into selling Christmas trees. It's a midsummer, but we had on the heavy overcoats, and he wore the earmuffs, and Christ knows what, you know. The, I think there was a title on there, in effect, that we were selling Christmas trees in July. That was, that was, we thought it was uh, kind of screwy, you know. Well, that was the humor of it. <laughs> so... So that does sound very much like a thing that Laurel and Hardy would do, would be trying to sell Christmas trees in the summertime. Yeah. But but it, it just isn't true. And I, I knew absolutely that it wasn't true when I was gifted with this. This, I, this is the date book for 1928, which was given to me by Venice Lloyd, widow of cameraman Art Lloyd. How Art got it or how she got it, I don't know. Maybe she got it at the uh, auction they had in 1963 before they demolished the studio. Right. 
Right. But the great thing about this, I don't know if I've shown this to you before. No, 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 no. Oh, well, uh, the great thing about it is the if you can crack the code, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, there was a man at the studio named L.A. French, Louis Elver French. And Hal Roach knew him when he was a truck driver, when Roach was a truck driver, because Mr. French was the accountant for the truck company. And he was very, very scrupulous and honest. And Roach said, if I ever start my own business, I want you to be the, the money manager. Well, Roach started his own business and he sought out Mr. French and Mr. French came to work for Mr. Roach and stayed there for years and years. And in fact, his son was Lloyd French, who became a, an assistant director on most of the Laurel and Hardy silence and directed some of the talkies in 1933, uh, also became a writer for Three Stooges and uh, did a lot of uh, Vitaphone shorts, uh, directed a lot of those, but the, he was uh, L.A. French's son. Anyway, uh, this is this will tell you uh, what was shooting and when. So uh, let's see if I can find one here. Well, I'll, I'll show you the ones for, for, for big business. Um, here we go. We have, it says here, L19 Horn, that's James Horn, or, or J. Wesley Horn, as he's credited in the, the credits. Uh, French is, is Lloyd French, assistant director. Mintz is Tom Mintz, prop man. Then we have Stevens, Roach, and Graham, George Stevens, chief cameraman. Jack Roach, Hal's brother, is assistant cameraman one, and probably the guy doing the... Uh, uh, the the other negative the 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 b negative oh, yeah. and there's also there's also h graham who is another assistant uh, cameraman it says l and h and then it says culver and this is the only day that they're shooting where it says culver so that tells us that it was uh, wednesday december 19th 1928 when they shot the opening where they're driving down the street i have a story about that too the opening shot and then they did the bit at the duplex with lily tail Yes. So that so that was all shot that one day, uh, and this this details uh, every day of the shooting. So that's how I knew that this was actually shot during Christmas week of 1928, which is probably why it was easy for them to go get Christmas trees. Yeah, exactly. And and no doubt inspired uh, the idea for the film. They saw people selling Christmas trees and probably door to door, and they said, "There's a there's a good idea for them," and it was. You know, it was it was topical the week they shot it. <laughs> yeah, this is it's 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 just a little. They just went to the drugstore and got one of these. Oh, this is okay. just a little. It's like okay. a little calendar book. You know, it's just just ruled pages like this. And uh, you know, uh, unlike MGM and other uh, studios that would do very very detailed production reports <laughs> on everything that was shooting, yeah. I think this was it for the Roach Studios until until Ginsburg came in because right, right. starting about 1931, that's when you start to see uh, daily production reports, right. where they will say time of first shot. You know, when do we when do we get our first shot? Okay. And it'll say and it'll say how much footage shot and how much good footage shot, <laughs> gotcha. which is always inter interesting to see the ratio, you know, were they 10 to one, were they six to one, how much did they shoot as opposed to how much was usable footage? Yes. Yeah. And uh, most people were 10 to one and the, the Roach people tend to be four or five to one. They were pretty, uh, pretty well on the money. They didn't make too many mistakes. So, but uh, anyway, yeah, good old LA French uh, wrote in this uh, every day and uh, so, so a big business starts on Wednesday, December 19th, uh, now, and they go all the way through, let's see, they didn't work on Christmas day, 
um, which was a, a, a Tuesday, but they did shoot on a Sunday, Sunday the 23rd. Now, normally they had Sundays off, but in order, in order to compensate for being off on Christmas Day, they shot Sunday the 23rd. And uh, all the other days say uh, uh, Cheviot, uh, meaning Cheviot Hills, meaning they're at the Finlayson house. Uh, the only thing that changes is on Monday, December 24th, Christmas Eve day, it's still James Horn director, Lloyd French props. It's Ham Kinsey instead of Tom Mintz is now the prop man. But, but still George Stevens, Jack Roach, and Harold Graham as the camera crew, L&H, and Cheviot. Now, now Kinsey's, that, that was Stan's uh, stunt guy, wasn't it? He's double. Yeah, yes. And, so he was and also prop man. He did all sorts of things. Oh, <laughs> he's, like, he's like Chet Brandenburg. Uh, or Charlie Hall, uh, for that matter. Right, uh, right. I, I recently, did I show you the, the Bonnie Scotland script that Charlie Hall had that I acquired recently? Uh, you I, may I, have I, held it up to the camera yeah, when you first oh, bought oh, it. Yeah. Okay, well, well d d December before last, I came into a whole bunch of scripts, uh, one of which is a Bonnie Scotland script, and it has Chaz Hall on the front of it, <laughs> which, which which is odd because he has a microscopic role in the movie. Yes. He's, he's a little knife bearer with a turban and a beard and everything, and that's all he does. <laughs> but I, I think he was a dialogue director on that film. Oh, I wow. think he ran, in other words, he ran lines with people in between takes. I got you, so okay. They, so they could remember what they were supposed to say. Got you. And that's, and you know, so... Uh, that was the thing about Roach was they paid scant attention to unions or to division of labor. Everybody did everything, you know. Right. Where, whereas when you get to the big studios, it's ah, you can't you you can't move that. That's the greensman has to do that, you know. Uh, so yes, yes. At Roach's, you would have probably had Hal Roach himself getting a broom and saying, "Come on, <laughs> yeah. get going." Ginsburg certainly would have. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Time's a wasting. Come on, come on, come on. Time is money. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that Ginsburg, though, is the reason why Laurel and Hardy got their Academy Award for the music box? I didn't know this until recently. I think I read. Uh, yeah, Gins I think I read that Ginsburg, recently. Ginsburg wrote to the Academy and said, "Why don't you have any awards for short subjects?" That's right. They're yeah. a key part of the program, and it was only a couple of months before they had the ceremony. But somebody said, "Hey, you know, that's a good idea," yeah. and so the Roach Studio nominated music box and maybe because Ginsburg <laughs> floated the idea in the first place they won but uh, <laughs> but but they would not have won their academy award had it not been for Henry Ginsburg yeah. uh, suggesting that they have that category so yeah. you know 10 points for him there well absolutely right. and also of course so, he kept the he kept the studio open in very very difficult times didn't he uh, you know, he was... senate had lost his studio uh, al christie was gone yeah the the independent comedy short subject producers were were going away in 1933, and uh, Roach had to try to make shorts that would, would be uh, something that people would buy and and see, and or convert to feature film production. And he was sort of doing both at the same time at that time. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Maybe so, that could be the name, the title for his uh, his biography: Henry Ginsburg and Necessary Evil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after he left Roach, he went to Paramount and became the uh, sort of the supervising director of everything there, just like Leo McCary had been uh, at Roach's, and evidently was a very, very good executive. Uh, he was there for many years, and the other good thing about him is we, he was very vocal against the uh, blacklist blacklist in the late forties. 
Right. He said, you know, you, you, you can't deprive people this just because of their political affiliations. You can't deprive people of their work and da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, George Stevens uh, did not hold any grudges against him for, for firing him uh, because <laughs> George Stevens hired him, uh, I think, for Shane and Giant. And, uh, and oh, he's okay. Got, yeah, Gins, right. Ginsburg has prominent credits on all of the mid to late 50s George Stevens major films. Right. So... <laughs> So Ginsburg fired Stevens, but Stevens uh, hired Ginsburg. <laughs> Did Richard go. Courier hold a grudge? Because he fired Courier as well, didn't he? He had a bit of words with Courier, didn't he? Well, Curry, Courier had a good career at Paramount also, and then started his own uh, in independent editing uh, uh, company. So, you know, and oh, and he did come back to Roaches in the mid-40s uh, after Ginsburg was gone, because he, I think he worked on some of the streamliners. So, yeah, you know. So, you know, this is, you, you get fired, you get hired, and uh, don't be angry at anybody because you never know who you're going to be working with. <laughs> That's right, same, exactly. Same thing, same thing with Elmer Regis. Uh, Ginsburg fired Regis in December 31, and then a year later he realized that he needed Regis, and by that time he was working at Fox, but they got him back just in time for Babes in Toyland. So, and, and then Regis stayed forever and ever and ever and through the 50s. So your question again was... <laughs> Uh, um, the, the location or the 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 time that it was shot was Christmas week of twenty eight. That's right. It. Yes, yes. Well, that uh, <laughs> like I say, it it definitely was shot uh, every day except Christmas Day of that yeah. week, and shot from Wednesday the nineteenth of December through Wednesday December twenty sixth. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. I, I wondered is it um does, it doesn't mention Christmas trees in summertime in one of the Youngson films, does it? I was just looking at when comedy was king, uh, and I, I have to tell you something about that too. Um, but I'm not sure if they said in the summertime. But that, that's always an assumption people make because there's no snow anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's but that's Culver City for you. Now, do you want to talk about the house? <laughs> I'd love to talk about the house. Okay. <laughs> well. Uh, you know, if you go to Zillow, Z-I-L-L-O-W, uh, they they have spies that are taking pictures of every house uh, in the United States, I think. And you can type in 10281 Dunlear Drive, Los Angeles, 90064. Uh, it's D-U-N-L-E-E-R. And it's, it's in the Cheviot Hills District. That's not really its own city, but that's the section of right next to Culver City. Uh, and it, it is a two-bedroom, three-bath house, 1,409 square feet. Uh, if you were to buy it today, it would be $1,791,200. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it sold for when it was first built in 1925. Yeah. Uh, the full lot that it sits on is 6,440 square feet. It has one parking space. It's a single uh, uh, story. And let's see, uh, I can tell you that uh, the original owner of it was a man by the name of Bayard Taylor, B-A-Y-A-R-D, B-A-Y-A-R-D, Bayard Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, and uh, presumably he bought it in 1925. He was born in 1890 in Riverside, California. He was a bank clerk, and then he was a salesman for a fruit company, and then a, a, a secretary in an office. And he had moved to Missouri by 1930. So he was no longer, and probably before that, 
I, I know that uh, at the time that the uh, film was made, it was owned by William Terhune, who was an editor at the Root Studios. Uh, when Talkies came in, I think he was primarily a sound or music editor. Uh, he did direct a few films, and he was also what they called the unit manager on Way Out West. And a unit manager, that's uh, the guy who basically oversees everything and is always in touch with the department heads of every other little department. He's sort of the guy who, he's, he's mama hen over everything. Um, uh, and unfortunately, he suffered from heart disease. He, uh, he, he moved to uh, MGM proper in 1939. And he, he, he edited three feature films there, one of which was the Marx Brothers movie At the Circus. And uh, then he, he died. He was only about, what, about 40 years old, I think. Um, and he died in December of 1940 in the big business house. But uh, he, yeah, he, he had owned it, but he wasn't living in it at the time of the big business filming. He was renting it. And I figured that out looking through the 1930 census. I was trying to find, you know, trying to find the house there. And, and I saw every, every other house in the block was there in the census, but not 10281 Dunleard. And I thought, why not? And I realized because there's nobody living there. You can't, why take a census if there's nobody home and there's nobody there? And I found out that he was living in Los Angeles proper on a street called Ardmore with his mother at the time. But then in 1930, he got married. And then very soon after, then he did move into the house. And in 1932, he had had his first child with his wife. And, and they made some modifications to the house in 1932. So anyway, <laughs> the reason it was available for big business was a guy at the studio owned it, but wasn't using it. So right. perfect, you know. <laughs> so there you go. Now, very, very uh, much like bacon grabbers, isn't it? Well, uh, the same page of that census form <laughs> also had the Bannockburn Drive house because it's only a little block oh, away. Right. Okay. And that, that's the house that Elmer Regis was renting. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he, hadn't, he hadn't yet moved the rest of his family out from Camden, New Jersey, when they made ba bacon grabbers. Right. So that's why... You know, they said, can we shoot some interior shots going through the window, showing Stan <laughs> on the ladder? And yeah, come on in. You know, <laughs> the wife the wife wasn't going to be annoyed by that because she was still in New Jersey at the time. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, Craig Regis, uh, uh, Elmer's grandson, uh, scanned for me some wonderful snapshots of his father, Elmer Jr., uh, standing by the family car in the driveway of that house. And oh yes, it's a yeah. nice, nice shot of the full house. You know, you get to see sections of it in bacon grabbers but it's really yeah. nice to see the entire house it's very hard to see the entire house now because there's so much shrubbery around it right. uh they, they they want their privacy <laughs> understandably now now the 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 lady who owns the uh the jimmy finlayson big business house at 10281 dunlear drive uh, thank goodness she is very much aware of the history of the house and very agreeable uh, about it. And she evidently has a big picture from the film somewhere in her living room. Oh, brilliant. And, and presumably she has gotten used to many tourists stopping by and gawking and having their picture taken in front of her house. Wow. Uh, I, I imagine that, they, uh, that the uh, Way Out West uh, Sons of the Desert tent people uh, probably went up to her door and got her permission when they were about to have one of their many tours of Laurel and Hardy locations. They probably said, we're going to have a busload of people from all over the world wearing these funny red hats. 
<laughs> and they want to park in front of your house and have a picture taken on your lawn. Is that okay? I'm sure they got her permission. Uh, oh, I, I've, I've never met her and I've never been inside the house. That would be fascinating to actually go yeah. inside the house. But anyway, she is, uh, she's friend, not foe. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. So, that's wonderful. And we've just, we've just given her address out on, uh, on, on the podcast. Well, that's, it's, com <laughs> it's common knowledge. It's it is, all over it the is. place anyway. So uh, she probably gets fan mail every once in a while, you know, oh, <laughs> to, to, to big business house lady, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't be at all surprised. Love it. So yeah, and of course th there is the 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 Hal Roach story. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Well, you know, big uh, Hal Roach made his living making people laugh and telling inventive stories. Yeah. And uh, uh, Richard Ban is adamant that it really happened, but I have to tell you, I I have this date book which details every day of production, and usually if there's some problem or some extra prop they need or some extra expenditure it's detailed here and it's yeah. not it it's just smooth sailing for the entire week yeah. nothing at all indicates that there was anything amiss or wrong now is it possible that they rented the house from terhune and then went to a different house thinking that that was the house okay that's possible not bloody likely <laughs> um <laughs> In fact, there are they what what appears to be all in the same location is really uh, quite a ways away from each other because Finlayson is not directly across the street from his house. When you see the shots of him with their car, he's yeah. actually quite a bit to the east. And then Tiny Sanford is about a hundred yards away at the end of Dunlear Drive. The, the shots of him reacting in his car. Yeah. So you know, movies make their own geography, and. You know, like Orson Welles has over-the-shoulder shots, which are Italy 1949 and Spain 1951, and you never yes. knew <laughs> that there's yeah. two years and a country between them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, the, uh, the story that Roach uh, told, I had him tell it to me. I wanted my own verbiage on it. And he, he said, they said they wanted a bungalow. So the location manager went out and he photographed five or six bungalows with a still camera. One of the bungalows he photographed belonged to a guy working at the studio. I made a deal with the guy to go on his vacation. We'd keep a guard at his house every night. We'd wreck the house and we guaranteed to put the house back in order and pay him a fee. The director had a picture of the house and the other cars were following him to the location. Another bungalow, which was a block away, looked exactly like the one in the picture. The director said, this is it, all right, stop. Then the property man says, the key don't fit. The director says, well, hell with that, we're gonna break the door down anyway. So they broke the door down. They did a lot of things that weren't in the script. Cutting down all of those trees, that wasn't in the script, but what the hell, they all knew this guy worked at the studio, they figured they'd buy a new tree. The next to last day, a man, his wife and two kids drove up in front of the house. The woman damn near fainted. We had the wrong house, so we had to pay for that house as well as pay for the house that nobody used. Well, just very quickly, uh, they were going to uh, they were selling Christmas trees in the summertime, and we needed a bungalow. And one of the boys working at the studio had a bungalow close to the studio. The the location man went over and made a picture of the house and showed it to the director. He okayed the house. And uh, uh, we said we were going to wreck your house, but we'd put it back and pay you so much money. Well, what actually happened on the way to the 
the house, uh, the director who had the picture in his hand, he saw the house and he said, here it is, stop. So they all there about five or six cars with trucks stopped and there's the, the house. And um, uh, the first the director, the assistant director says the key doesn't work. And uh, <laughs> the, the director said, never mind, we're going to break the door down anyway, break the door down. So they did. Well, they completely wrecked this house in two weeks. They broke every window, they cut down every tree, they cut down every bush. They wrecked everything there was about the house. And the last day, a man and wife and two kids drove up in front of the house. The woman almost fainted, and we had the wrong house. The other house was block away. Well, <laughs> the part about it being owned by a guy at the studio, that one's... And, and there are stills of Terhune standing in the wreckage of the house and shrugging as if to say what happened so he was there when they were filming it and uh, uh mr roach had told that story uh on uh, uh, an interview show uh, in a local los angeles tv show called the les crane show and stan saw it and he wrote a letter to the fan he said the anecdote hal roach senior told on the les crane show was definitely not true the chap who owned the house was employed at the studio and worked on the film with us so now he's not listed as a member of the crew uh, in the date book, but as I have come to learn, there are almost always many, many, many people on the crew that are not credited in any way, yes. shape, or form. Of course. So, um, so it's very likely that he could have been there uh, to assist with whatever they needed. Yes. You know. Now I imagine there are things that the studio put in, like the piano. I imagine that that was something that the studio brought in. Yes. To, yeah. For Stan to demolish. Um, and and uh, all the, the, the vases that uh, Stan throws out the window that Hardy hits with the shovel, demonstrating his uh, prowess as a, as, a, as a baseball player. Yes, that's um, right. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was embellished by the studio, but uh, uh, I'm quite sure that William Terhune was there because there are stills of him being yes. there at, at the time. So. He's, not say, he's not scratching his head saying, this isn't my house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or saying, I didn't authorize you to do this. You know, <laughs> I thought you were just going to drive by and get a nice picture of it, and that was it. That's you right. Know? And also, yeah. I think, um, I'm sure uh, Stan, in the, in the phone conversation, I think he was, I think it's the conversation with... Um, uh, the guy that was a fraud. What was the guy's name? Oh, oh, name. Uh, Don Marlowe. Don Marlowe. Thank you. I always forget his name. He was actually saying to him, um, you know, oh, that was a load of baloney. I think that was his words. He, that was a load of baloney. In fact, uh -huh. we went in, we went in and sat and had tea breaks in the bungalow with William oh. Terhune. <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh huh. That was a load of baloney. What did he think? We were a bunch of nuts or something? Nothing to it. He wasn't even in town when we made that picture. The guy that the house belonged to worked at the studio. In fact, during in the afternoon, we went in at coffee breaks with him and his wife. Ridiculous. Happily, uh, the, the locations for big business are all pretty much intact. You can go into that neighborhood and look at those houses, and boy, they're, they're there. Uh, the, the duplex, uh, where they do the scene with Lily Teo, and, and the man uh, wield the unseen man wielding the hammer, uh, that that is at uh, 3404 and 3406 Caroline Avenue. Yeah, Caddy Corner between six and seven on nine. It's just across the way. From, you know uh, where it is. Isis. And Caroline Avenue is also where they do the last shot of Tiny Sanford chasing Laurel and Hardy, where you can see the 
the Baldwin Hills oil derricks in the background on the hills there. And uh, let's see, was there another location? Oh, yeah, I want to tell you the other, the, the, the street uh, where Laurel and Hardy are driving in the first shot. Now, I have a friend named Jeffrey Byrne, who I have known uh, since we were both in uh, first grade. And uh, he has lived in Culver City for about 40 years. And let's see if I can find the window where he told me where everything is. Um, he recognized, oh, here, 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 here we go. He lived, he lives in Culver City. And I had posted something on Facebook about the two different negatives for big business. Uh, uh, back in the silent days, because there was really no adequate copying stock, they would make two negatives. They made the A negative for the United States and they made the B negative for everybody else. And that's why there would be two cameramen cranking right next to each other. And because they're right next to each other, there are differences in the angles because they're not in exactly the same place. Where you can really tell this in big business is uh, the opening shot where you're sh you're, there's a camera truck pulling their car down the street. And we see them with the Christmas trees in the back. In the A negative, it's right centered, right in the middle. In the B negative, there's a little more of the street that we see to the left in the shot. Also, in the, the moment where uh, uh, Finlayson first charges toward their car and squints at them, in the domestic negative, it's a very tight close-up, and he's almost looking right into the camera. And then there's, then there's a further reaction. Then Laurel and Hardy then taunt him by imitating his squint, <laughs> and then they cut back to that setup, and he, he's taken aback. You know, he, he does a reaction. Yeah. Well, those those two shots of Finlayson, which are really one shot just cut together. Uh, uh, in the in the domestic negative, it's very tight. He's framed very very tight, and he's looking very close, almost into the camera. The other negative, there's a lot more room around him, and it's more of a profile shot. Right, right. Now, over the years, those two negatives, because of nitrate decomposition and other issues, they've become intercut. So now you have right. a negative, which is part A negative, part B negative. Right. Um, uh, I, I got another story about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, was, I posted something on Facebook which showed the opening shot in the A and the B negative, both of them. And my friend Jeff Byrne, who just happened to see that, uh, he said, the other day you posted this on your Facebook page and mentioned it was shot on Jacob Street in Culver City. That's what I had always been told and what seemed to be right. He says, we have some friends who live on Roberts near Jacob, and the street in the photo look kind of wide for Jacob. The sidewalk along Jacob abuts the street without a parkway. Uh, uh, and Nancy and I, as Jeff's wife, were looking at the Laurel and Hardy photo again. We thought the street looked like a street that other friends of ours lived on. After some map Googling, I think we may have found it. The location seems to be, here you go, here's a scoop for you, on Madison <laughs> Avenue, looking northwest toward the intersection of Braddock Drive in the background. The feature that seems to nail the location is the the pink house. Well, it's pink in, the, in a photo he took for me. In the background, on the left at the corner with the little bay window. I've attached photos here, and I can I can send those to you if you want. Oh yes, but, please. Love but to there see there there is a house that has a very distinctive uh, uh, window with with it's it's with interesting sides and a little tiled roof, and right. it's still there. 
and uh, uh, you know he's he's got a he's got a current shot of it, and you see it very prominently in the frame grab from Big Business. And sure enough, that's got to be it because it's a weird oh, looking great. house. So so it's not on Jacob Street. It, it is on, and of course I am not infallible. I'm always finding mistakes that I've made. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do another edition. Um, yes. Uh, anyway, it's Madison Avenue looking northwest toward the intersection of Braddock, B-R-A-D-D-O-C-K, Drive in the background. So there you go. So you can thank my friend Jeffrey Byrne, B-U-R-N-E, for living in Culver City and having an eagle eye. And I've known him since 1964, and we're still buddies. That's so, fantastic. So there you go. And we say, well, it's just great. We're still finding out these, these these snippets of information. That's fantastic. Oh, it, it will never well end. Well Jeffrey. It will never yes. end. If I, if, if I live to be like my mother, who just turned 97 the other day, I will still be finding more pieces of information. I know, oh, I know. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, we are buddies. Well, you certainly are a sorry-looking pair. <laughs> we are not sorry. No, sir. We're just discouraged. Now, I mentioned I mentioned the two different negatives. Uh, about two years ago, uh, I, I don't know how I managed to stumble on this, but on eBay, I found a guy who just had some unusual film, old film odds and ends, old take-up reels and projection lamps and a pair of rewinds. This guy lived in Big Bear, California, which is a rustic area, oh, 150 miles north of me. It's sort of a resort ski area. Right. And I must have been a film collector or something. Anyway... The one interesting thing that he had to me was a 35 millimeter negative of big business taken right off of the fine grain master positive. Wow. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Why is a guy in Big Bear have now you see there's the camera negative that was there the day they shot it. From yeah. that they make uh that's that's the the master 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 negative. Then they make a fine grain master positive, which is a really, really good looking positive. And from that, they then make the mother negative from which they then make the positive prints. So if you're seeing a first, a first release positive print, it's already the fourth generation. This negative would be the third generation. This would be what they would make the negative from to, you know, so, I mean, this was the negative. Uh, and he wanted $950 for it. Now I said, now I have no 35 millimeter equipment. I'm not a lab guy, but I had better get this just to make sure that it's it's there when somebody needs it, as assuredly somebody will. And I, I had seen what was supposed to be a restoration print of big business, and I thought it looked pretty feeble because the, the very first film I ever bought from Blackhawk Films in Davenport, Iowa, back in 1968, when I was nine years old, was Big Business in Super 8. At that point, the film was not even 40 years old yet, and the elements were still in good shape, and it's still a great-looking print, and it's, from, it's entirely from the A-negative, too, by the way. Uh, so, and, and so this was A-negative uh, neg from the fine-grain master positive. So thanks to PayPal credit, <laughs> I was able to send the guy the 950 bucks. I got the, it was on two separate big 35 millimeter reels. And it was quite, quite a, a thrill to look at it and see the original main title and everything else. Wow. And uh, uh, so um, I, I was able to make some scans uh, uh, and turn them from negative into positive form so we could see what it looked like. It was very sharp. And you could see that the entire imagery was there because 
the edges of the frame were, were rounded. Uh, oh, so you were wow. seeing you were seeing absolutely everything that the camera saw. Oh, amazing. That's and amazing. and so I had it for almost exactly a year. And then I heard from a guy named Bruce Lawton. And he said, what are you doing anything with that negative? And I said, No, I'm waiting for somebody who can. And he says, Well, <laughs> I do a lot of work with the Library of Congress. And you know, I'll I'd buy it from you if you want to sell it. And I said, Well, I'll sell it to you for what I paid for it, which is $950. And he said, Okay, yeah. so he paid me and I sent him the negative and he's got it. And uh, so, uh, as I say, things are happening with the silence. Uh, it's going to be a while before, before, before we see the amazing results, but I guarantee you, you will be flabbergasted. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, you're so, so just, excited. Just, just, just stay tuned. Yes. You're, you're, you're yeah. right. You're, you doing a book about the silent films is well-timed. It is, isn't it? <laughs> you, 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 you may want to wait a little bit until things start being released. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's going to still take some time. But things are in the pipeline that will, un unless Mr. Putin blows us all up, uh, <laughs> if, 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 we, if the planet survives, uh, we will be really in good shape in, in a couple of years. So, oh. and of course, things will be going PD back then, uh, by that time too. So we'll probably have an onslaught of really bad quality uh, copies <laughs> yes, too. That's true. But that's there true. will be the great alternatives, uh, which are which are coming eventually. That's, so that's I hope true. that I hope that uh, they will make use of that uh, yeah. negative. When when the time comes for them to start work on that, I will uh, 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 prod them about that until they will be, want to yes. no longer associate with me. I'll just say, remember, I have that negative now. That's probably the best <laughs> source you can get because it had it had the full original main titles, uh, which which are not on one of the uh, one of the video releases has uh, newly made uh, intertitles and main title. Well, this had everything wow and intact wow. and gorgeous. And was this the domestic negative? Did you and say? it was the A negative. Yes. Wow. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah incredible. Yeah. Well, well, well knew... done for rescuing that. That's a fantastic so, story. So uh, there, uh, there is better, I, I believe, better material on big business than what we are now able to see. Yeah. That's incredible. So, so there's incredible. that. This is unbelievable. I knew you'd be surprised. Don't go away. Don't go away. Don't... Get out of my way. Yes, sir. The one thing I was going to mention was, of course, there is no musical score for this film, yeah. which is a, which is a shame. Yes, it, 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 Roach had been doing the orchestral scores, and uh, happily, the uh, the Victor Talking Machine Company ledgers for those uh, exist. So, in some cases, we even know the names of all the musicians, uh, but we at least do know the full orchestration for all of those. There were uh, they did uh, our gang comedies as well, and I suppose they probably did Charlie Chase and whatever other series Roach was doing. But uh, yeah, they, the first one is Habeas Corpus, and they they now all do survive. Uh, for a while, there were only three of them, but all five of the orchestral scores have been found. Uh, of course, we knew nothing about those in the mid seventies. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, in the mid seventies, we didn't have any of those. We didn't have any of the foreign language pictures. We didn't have a soundtrack for Unaccustomed as We Are, and uh, Duck Soup and Why Girls Were uh, Love Sailors also were thought to be lost forever. Yeah. Well, yeah. how nice that in the ensuing not quite fifty years, all of those things have been found. You know, there've been many, many. So, so the, I always hold out hope for hats off because. Uh, so many wonderful things have been found in recent years, particularly in Australia, because that was that was the end of the distribution chain. And so a lot of theater managers said they don't want me to ship it back. 
I'll keep it in case I don't get the film I'm supposed to get next week. I'll have something to show. And a lot of prints just stayed there. So anyway, so it was habeas corpus, uh, uh, wrong again, liberty, uh, that's my wife, uh, and I'm missing one of the other ones. Um, well, anyway, there were five with an orchestra. And then they then there's Double Whoopi and Big Business, which don't have any score whatsoever. And then they did the last two silence were Bacon Grabbers and Angora Love, done with a much more economical solo pipe organ instead of a full orchestra. But uh, yeah, you kind of wonder why they didn't do a score for those. Do you think it was two. down to down to sort of time and 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 finance, I guess, because obviously they got they had what was it two films left to make in the last two weeks of twenty eight. That's yeah. my wife and big business, and obviously that's my wife had a score, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and and big I, business. I, it just... I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that talkies were becoming ever more popular and prominent, and they kind of thought, why do we need to invest? any more money in, in silent pictures and we absolutely need to you know because let's see when when was big business released big business was released uh, april of 29 copyrighted june 27th i always thought that was interesting that sometimes they didn't copyright them until a couple of months after they'd already been in the movie theaters some guy could have duped it all all over the place and wouldn't have been in trouble but yeah you know by april of 29 uh, talkies were well on the way and of course, by April of thirty, uh, silence were just thought to be entirely obsolete. So, and I think a lot of that has to do with the start of a new decade. Even though uh, people say oh, it's not really the start of a new decade, it started in nineteen thirty-one. Well, the fact that it's now not nineteen two something is now it's nineteen three. And a lot of times that happens with technology. It's like, well, we're wiping the slate clean and we're starting with this this new. That that happened with uh, the the jump from LP records to CDs in in nineteen nineteen ninety. You know, everybody right. said, oh, LPs are dead, 1990. We're in the 90s now, we're CDs. Yeah. And now it's the other way around. Now people think that CDs are dead and vinyl records are coming back. That's right. That's right. They're back. I collect and every format, back. so I don't care. I still use 78s all the time. So, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the, the encroaching obsolescence of silent movies and why are we pouring all this money into full orchestration or orchestral, yeah, orchestral scores when people are just going to want to hear talk in a, in a, in a while anyway. So, yes. Yeah. And it, you know, it makes you wonder, did they cut down on the number of prints that they made? Um, you know, I'm sur I'm surprised that, that uh, Angora love survives because I think Angora love was probably the last silent film issued by any major uh, uh, film company in the United States ever. Uh, because I, because MGM issued the last silent feature which was a greta garbo feature and that came out in september of 29 and angora love which was shot in may <laughs> sat on the shelf until december and like mid-december so what kind of distribution would angora love have gotten uh, you know the the very tail end the literal tail end of the of the of the silent era uh you know and and the the the, the silent films that has, have had the worst survival rate are the ones made at the end of the silent era, which were probably the best ones, because because they never had the time to be reprinted and reissued. You know, there was that one there was that one batch of prints, and probably a dwindling number of prints because there wasn't as much demand for silent film, and they they weren't reprinted, and so that's why 
that's why the uh, you know like i say richard courier was wise enough to have two uh, uh negatives made on the laurel and hardy's or two fine green master positives they didn't do that for charlie chase or max davidson which is why uh, those series are in tatters you know there's very very few there's a lot of the chase uh path a shorts because those were issued as 16 millimeter safety film prints for the non-theatrical market for, oh, wow. for for schools and churches it was the codoscope library and nice. you can you can find codoscope library catalogs from 1932 and they have a lot of roach films from 1927 you know only five years earlier and so that's that's why those codoscope prints look very nice because you know <laughs> the, the film was five years old when those prints were struck and and that's and and that has up till now, that has been the way that we have had almost all of the Laurel and Hardy Pathé films, is thanks to Codoscope yeah. Prince. Oh, that's interesting. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're teasing us today. That's good. I can't yeah. wait for that. That's that is yeah. really good stuff. But that's yeah, good. that's that's well, that's why the you know the the, the Charlie Chase uh, MGM Silence. We wish we had more of them, but uh, they 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 didn't have the wisdom of Richard Courier behind them. You know. No, no, and yeah, and because obviously, when when um, big business is in uh, is in theaters, it must it, audience must must be looking at it as a bit of a antiquity almost. It's it's almost yeah, you yeah. Know, it it seems seems strange. It must have had a very short shelf life. Well, and also remember that in those days they would the way that they distributed films was they 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 bicycled them. They would they would be in the major cities and then they were gradually parcel out to the smaller and smaller and smaller cities. Uh, in in detailing the release of um, Babes in Toyland, the big cities got it at the very end of November 1934, but there were small towns that didn't get it until March of 35, or May or May of 35. Uh, you know, several months after the big premiere. And it was just because they made, they would make about 300 prints and God knows how many theaters they had to go to around the country, probably, what, <laughs> five or 6,000 that were going to show that, th those films. And you can also imagine with regional censor boards uh, and the wear and tear on those prints, those prints were going to be in absolute uh, tatters by the time they got to the last stop on the train, you know? It's, it makes it makes me wonder actually just having that conversation about um, how far it was distributed and how how many prints were made because it, interestingly when I, as I've been researching writing my, my chapter for the silence book on big business very very few references to it I've, mm. are in the trade papers from what ah. I can find um, you know usually all the other uh, silent films up to that point yeah you know you get you get at least half a dozen sometimes tens twelves you know but big business very very few. Um, but very, you know, when you look at the what the what the picture did for me, the pic yeah, exactly. Hardly Those are fascinating. For big business, yeah, 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 hardly any for big business, which is uh. which is a shame because I do find them very enlightening. I wonder um, what you would find. I wonder what you would find on Angora Love. I'm really, really intrigued by that because official release was so very late in the silent era. How many people would have said, I'm not going to buy that? You know, there, I mean, there are MGM trade paper ads where they say, we have Laurel and Hardy in silent, synchronized, and sound. Yes. And so silent would have been no score whatsoever. Synchronized would have been the seven pictures that were released with music on discs. Yes. And then, and then sound would have been unaccustomed as we are, birthmarks, men of war. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, of and, course. And so they were offering exhibitors their choice of whatever format. And of course, especially in small towns, especially right after the stock market crash, there are a lot of theaters that didn't get wired for sound because was sound going to take hold or was it was it just a fad? Who knew? Who knew? Maybe people wanted to go back to silence in 1930. Uh, uh, and we have diminished uh, funds now because the stock market crashed and people have less uh, disposable income. So there are a lot of theaters that were still showing silence around the country, even if no new silent product was being generated. Uh, now, I do understand that there were some very low budget Western companies that were making silent films after 1930. Uh, and, and Roach and MGM did make s official silent versions of uh, Unaccustomed as We Are, as you might expect, but also there is a uh, silent print of Bratz somewhere. I've never seen it. Oh, wow. Okay. I have, I have seen the silent print of Birthmarks which has some unique footage of it that's not in the talkie version. Uh, so, so they were making, they were mindful of theaters that had not converted to sound equipment. You know, they hadn't wired speakers and they hadn't gotten whatever disc. That was the other question was, do we go with disc or do we go with sound on film? That hadn't, that hadn't been decided yet either because MGM made prints available in both formats. So, you know, there's too many question marks uh for people to say oh well it's june of 1929 let's convert you know uh <laughs> do, do we need sound at all you know so uh uh so you so anyway there there are silent prints of things going well into 1930 and maybe even uh, more than that i so much of the documentation of the hal roach studios was lost when the government took the place over in 1942 they incinerated yeah. a lot of it and what didn't get lost there uh, got scattered to the winds when the studio was demolished and they had the big auction, you know. So, I mean, I've, I'm always just flabbergasted that I've been able to, to obtain an original script for the music box or two TARS. How in the world, how in, how did that survive 90-odd years? Where has it been? It's crazy, who, isn't it? Who had it? Why <laughs> did I get it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All you guys and gals up there that I used to know and the ones I didn't, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best with it. That's all I can say. I have no idea why these things fall into my lap, but they do. They do. I'm still trying to work out how on earth they could make a silent out of birthmarks. Well, I mean, what would we do if we couldn't hear Ollie saying, will you move over? Yeah. They, <laughs> over they, and over they, again. They use that same title card about eight times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's just other ones. Stop saying, you know, crushing you know, me. <laughs> groan, grunt, sound of struggling. Yeah. Ignore him. Just one of the lower elements. And uh, one thing I was going to just mention as well, of course, um, with big business, it's uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, this is probably the last time that... Um, the sort of reciprocal destruction was used, was used hmm. as the main driver of the, of the of a film. Yeah, they do it again in Huskow. Um and and the boats in uh, Men of War too is kind of going toward that. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, but but yeah. I mean, the idea of that always being the last sequence of a Laurel and Hardy film that was kind of running its kind of running out of steam, really. You know. Yes. I yeah, mean, what what that. what else can you throw at people that you haven't thrown before? You know, 
Well, yeah, exactly. we've we've done rocks in Finishing Touch. We've done mud in Should Married Men Go Home. We've done pies in Battle of the Century. We ripped pants in Your Darn Tootin'. We th we ripped up cars in Two Tars. You know, everything has got to be a major battle at the end of the film. Well, no, it doesn't. You know, and I mean they they had proven by that point that you could do a film like uh, We Fought Down or That's My Wife uh, yeah. or Liberty uh, that had an entirely different type of finish and it was just as good as, as the, yeah. the reciprocal destruction films. Well, I think, I think we've, we've probably... We've probably oh, are we sold still all talking about Christmas big trees. business? I'm sorry. I, well, I, think we... <laughs> I do go off on tangents, don't I think so. I think just, I mean, just generally speaking... You know, a, a brilliant, brilliant show. I love the pacing of it. I think it's, I think it's fantastic, and the, the performances. Finlayson uh, is is just wonderful as usual. But what I think, what I really love about, and I guess this is this this goes for all the kind of um, reciprocal destruction. Certainly for most of it, is that it's very, um, it's very genteel destruction, if you like. There's no kind of silly physical brawling. They don't get into a, a, a fist fight. No, it's all no. It, it's it's you know the 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 Marquis of Queensbury rules. You know it's uh, uh, <laughs> yes, I right. get my turn, and I won't interrupt <laughs> you, and then you get your turn. And I was yeah. going to mention something too, um, being that that was shot in late December of '28, and especially where we are in Southern California. The available light shooting outdoors is very limited. Our days at that time of the year, it starts getting dark about 3.30 in the yes. afternoon. And I've noticed two points in the film where you can see that's if they shot it in sequence, they had to with that film, you know, yeah. because because yes, the, the house gets gradually worse and worse. There's no way to shoot that mm -hmm. out of sequence. You had to shoot that yeah. from A to Z. And yeah. uh, no doubt they had studio watchmen watching over the property when this when everybody left. Um, there's two points in the movie where you can see it's getting dark. There's lots of shadows, and then the next shot it brightens up. Uh, yeah. There's a, it, one shot is a reaction shot of Finlayson standing on his lawn going like that, and it's it's dark and sh there's a lot of shadows. And the next shot it's bright sunlight and even and no shadows. <laughs> and then right. and then the shot by the door where Finlayson takes Hardy's pocket watch. It's just a two-shot, oh, yes. just a two-shot. Yes. And he listens and goes, hmm, mm-hmm. Then you cut to a three-shot, and now all of a sudden, bright light! <laughs> you know, oh, because right, that earlier okay. shot is dark and long. If you look behind Finlayson, long shadows. Also, the door, there's a continuity error. There's a continuity error because in the two-shot, the door is open quite a ways away. Then we cut right. to the three-shot the next morning, and that door is almost closed. So, so they'd forgotten uh, okay. how wide open or not the door was. <laughs> also, an interesting thing to look at, too, is in the shot where uh, uh, Finlayson and Tiny Sanford are, are starting to cry at each other because they're so sorry. Look in the background, and there's a house being built uh, behind them. And I'm going, yeah, you know, if you look at uh, Finishing Touch and you look at the, the surrounding area and Bacon Grabbers, uh, there were houses being built all over that neck of the woods, and then the big business house and bacon grabbers are almost neighbors, you know. And also, Beanie Walker lived right across the street from the big business house too. You know that? Yeah, he lived. He lived just a few houses away. So, so that was that. That Cheviot Hills area was teeming with movie people, uh, not only from Roach but also MGM, which was a mile down the street. So that was you know a new tract. 
built in 1925, and that's where all the uh, the movie people were moving. So that's why it's interesting to look at the census forms and you look at occupations, you know, and it'll be, you know, actor motion pictures, makeup motion pictures, scenario motion pictures. Everybody in the in the neighborhood <laughs> is in the movie business, you know. Great. So, Randy, uh, that's that's absolutely wonderful. Yet again, thank you so much for spending this time with us, uh, chatting sure. about big business Anytime. as well as everything else. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're we're very we're very quickly coming to the end of the silent films. I can't believe we've actually got this far. So, um, I mean, hopefully, I mean, we'll definitely speak to you again, and you know, in in coming episodes. Um, what have we got left now? We've got yeah. Double Whoopi and Bacon Grabbers. Bacon Grabbers. Love. That's it, I think, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Sure. If you don't have anybody yet for Bacon Grabbers or Angora, or Angora Love, I'd be happy to talk about either one of those. Oh, you're in. Uh, you're in, definitely. Uh, 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 anytime, anytime you want to come on, Randy, you're in. Particularly <laughs> because I was very happy to be able to identify uh, three of the supporting players in Angora Love who had been misidentified. Uh, so, uh, right. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, that, that, was, that was that was one of my key objectives in doing the rewrite of the magic behind the movies was I wanted to find the name of the boy who's in Bacon Grabbers with the big dog. And it's the same boy oh, who yeah. figures yeah. out that, that the goat is missing in Angora Love. I said, I said who, ah, who right. is that kid? I want to find out who that kid was. And I and I found him. I got the payrolls were blessed me that day. The payroll ledger. Ah, so I was, I was able to determine who it was. And I have his whole story. And so. We got that mystery solved. That was excellent. Excellent. So, yeah, thank you so much, Randy. It's been wonderful. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before we see you soon. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Randy. Be well. Say hi to the dog. Wonderful. Okay. (laughs) Take care. Bye. So that's it for the first part of our look at big business. Um, And remember... Don't make your mind up just yet over the wrong house debate, as you're still to hear from Richard Ban, which will be coming up in episode 31 very soon. And I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Thank you again for being with me on this journey through the films of Stan and Ollie. And don't forget to check out the new website and look out for the opportunity to become a patron of the podcast. Um, And when you do that, you'll be able to hear even more from uh, today's discussion with Randy, um, including, of course, Randy's selection of films that he would banish to Bogeyland. Um, You can keep in touch through the podcast's social media channels and our new website, laurelandhardyfilms.com. And finally, huge thanks to Randy again uh, for being with us, uh, being our special guest today. Uh, Thank you to the Bohunks Orchestra for the wonderful music. Um, And thank you so much for listening and being with me today. And until next time, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.